Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with that promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you, Bobby. Bobby's one of our deacons here at the church, and he came to bring the word of the Lord that we will be studying this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Lord, prepare our hearts to come before you in all holiness that we may draw closer to you, that the breath that you've breathed in us will be breathed out in your praise. Father, prepare our hearts. May we leave our troubles of the day behind. May we look forward into your scripture and know the day for all those to be redeemed and dwelling in the heavenly places that have placed their love and faith in you, draw closer with each breath. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you that are wondering, that is a lot of scripture, right? We don't normally cover that much scripture. I don't normally cover that much scripture at once. I like one verse, maybe two, and go and break it apart from there. But as it works out with Ephesians, that's what we are doing. This is one continuous sentence in Greek. This is the longest sentence in the New Testament. If you look into your Bibles, you see likely commas and a period or two in there and an array of numbers that, of course, aren't part of the original text. And while that's good, that gives us a great reference point for how we can break down and you know, mentally divide out the scriptures, it also does strip a little bit away from how Paul intentionally wrote this one very lengthy, very run-on, very theological, heavy, top-heavy with the triune God sentence. And so when I say sentence today, I'm not talking about maybe verse 3 or 4, the sentence, all of it. We will be moving towards the climax of verses 13 and 14. That is the sermon focus for today, but we have to cover a lot of material before we get there. We simply can't cut out a piece of scripture and look at one or two verses without giving some context of how we're getting there because the context is very important. I did share with the first service, I quit counting how many sermons I could write out of these few verses, this one long sentence, at 11. There are more. This is a lot of sermons that are part of this one sentence. I'm even going to point out a couple to you along the way as we do have some points to look at. 
but I'm not going to go through 11 sermons today. We're going to hit the one, but it will be a lot of information coming at you quickly. Before we start diving into the scripture, I like to give you the learning objective, what I hope you walk out of here having learned. And if you have pen, paper, iPhone, crayon, borrow one from the kids, it doesn't matter, write down the learning outcome, which is understanding one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does many things in our lives. We're going to look at just one role of the Holy Spirit. And I also like to give a question that you can start to turn over in your mind as we progress through the words of the Lord. And that question is, are you confident before Christ? Learning objection, objective, understanding the role, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, the question to start rolling around in the old skull, are you confident before Christ? So we are in Ephesians. That's it. It's not me. I'm going to move this. Sometimes if I touch that, it gets funky. Hold on. There we go. As we're going into Ephesians, we need to know a little bit about Ephesus. It's an important city. It's obviously the source of where Paul is writing this letter to. But there's some background information that's just good as we start to go into the beginning parts of a new book for us to understand because the city itself, town, village, whatever you want to call it, does matter because it does, the way Paul writes, heavily is geared toward the place in which he's writing it towards. This is normal. Uh, I shared with the first service that, you know, the way I might write a letter to a city, well, the letter would look very different the way I would write it to Stanton, as opposed to Stewart's draft, as opposed to where I come from in Holland, which is all of 800 people. It's just going to be different styles. And that style is important as we see Paul hitting a few different focus points through the whole book of Ephesians. But looking at some of the history of Ephesus, it's considered a harbor city. Now, it's four miles inland from the Aegean Sea, but it's still considered a harbor city. There was a river or inlet that led out to the Aegean, and it was a major source of commercial trade. Uh, it's located in Asia Minor, which of course is modern-day Turkey, and it was a hustling, bustling place. It was listed among the top three trade industries in the ancient Near East with Antioch and Alexandria. So there's a lot going on here. This is important because where we see particularly... You want me to trade these? We're just popping. That's going to distract me the whole time. I'll just, we'll just take a break and trade if you want to. I'll meet you halfway. I can keep chatting with y'all as I'm going to switch this out if you'd like, but if you just give me a minute... Well, I'll just keep on talking. So, fireworks. Y'all have fireworks this weekend? All right. All right, am I on? There we go. We're back in business. That's the intermission. That's the fastest I've ever gotten to an intermission in a sermon in my life. So, give me a minute as I got to kind of get these, get myself renewed up here. All right, so we're back in Ephesus. Ephesus. Major port city. When you have a major port city, you're going to have, obviously, just the nations descend upon it because it's a trade city. Trade is important. Commerce is very important. And in the ancient world, if you have a place of trade, 
It means it's going to be heavily in cultural influence, obviously from the nations, as well as a heavy emphasis on religions of the world because we have all the religions, not all of them, but many of them, coming together in one place. You have to kind of remember, for us, we can travel 120 miles and do that, turn around and come back home if you want to. I mean, I've, I've made it pretty clear. There's a place in Nashville, Tennessee that's the best fried chicken I've ever had. And if you want to make a day of it, I'll ride down there with you just to get the chicken. <laughs> and that's a long ride. But until you've had Hattie B's fried chicken, you just can't possibly understand. But I would do it. But back then, that's not how it goes. To do a trip across the Aegean Sea, which is not that big, you're going to go and you're likely going to stay for a bit. And if you're going to stay, you're likely going to find people that are drawn to the same religion you are, drawn to the same community that you are. And so you begin to see many different religion, religious venues start to set up in major port cities. And so Paul puts a lot of effort into writing to these cities because they're dealing with so much. The church is dealing with a lot and the culture itself is dealing with a lot. So the main goddess of Ephesus is Artemis. It's an interesting choice. Probably wouldn't have been my first one if I were Greek that I'd have went with, but that's their choice. And so there is a temple set up to Artemis. And the reason why this goddess held a spot of importance was they believed that this stone fell from heaven and landed in the exact place the temple for Artemis would be built, and that that was her stone. That was a resemblance of who she was here on earth. So they have this big stone, and they built a shrine, a temple around it, and she became the patron goddess of, goddess of Ephesus. Now, this temple would be burned down, and this is important. As you start to put together the fact we're dealing with Greek culture and we're dealing with the Greek language, we need to understand a bit more about why that information of a goddess is important. In 356 B.C., on July 22nd, the temple of Artemis was burned to the ground. Can anyone tell me what major world event happened that day? July 22nd. 356 B.C., and you're not Googling it. I will come out and high-five you right now. Pompeii? Pompeii? Nope. I'll get, I'll get two more guesses. You get a personal high-five. I'll walk right out of this pulpit. Anybody? What you got, Seth? Throw an answer out there. Worst that can happen is you'd be wrong. Say Alexander the Great was born. Alexander the Great was born. You might think, well, what does that matter? Because in the Greek world, well, of course the temple of Artemis could be burned down because she's over here helping give birth to the greatest military leader that's ever going to exist and conquer the whole known world. That's why the temple burnt down. I mean, it seems silly to us now, but this, is, this makes sense that the only day the great Artemis could have allowed her temple to be defiled as if she were aiding in the birth of the greatest military leader, a leader that will change the known world end to end. So you start to go, so this is where the Greeks are. So the temple gets rebuilt, and it becomes one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So this is an important, important establishment in Ephesus. And it sets the tone for the religious environment that's there. 
And if you write down this note in Acts 19, verse 21 through 41, it tells you about the cult and pagan practices in Ephesus at this time. And it even mentions the stone that fell from the sky that they worshiped. So that's just, that's a fun note of reference. Go back and read that. Early on and all through Acts, Ephesus is brought up. So as we start to progress through, we're going to go through all the scripture knowing that we're ultimately building to verses 13 and 14. In verse 3, Paul starts, Blessed be the God and Father. This week I was in the other end of the building, which is where I kind of go to to get a quiet moment. Uh, I get distracted so easy, it has to be quiet for me to really dig in. And I made it that far before I hopped up. And I came out, I came running looking for Pastor Andy. I said, Pastor Andy, I need the doxology this week. Because when I read, blessed be the God, my mind goes right into the doxology. I sang the doxology I was exposed to it nine months before I was born until I left my hometown at 24 years old. Every Sunday was the doxology. I love the doxology. But what we see here, the blessed be the God, along with the doxology, while that says praise, it's directing our focus of adoration towards a holy God. And there is where Paul is starting, is blessed be God. Now, there's going to be something that through this long sentence that we see at the end, and I'll go ahead and start to share what this is going to look like, is this sentence, verses 3 through 14, very much speaks to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So kind of put that in your mind, write it on your notes, that that's going to be a theme through this one sentence of Paul's, which is why I I absolutely hold it shouldn't have punctuation. It shouldn't have the verse numbers in it. Let it be one sentence. That's how it was written, because it's a continuous flow of thought, and it's very important. But as we look at verse 3 and 4, Paul starts with the blessed be the God, and then he's going to move into of our Father, Lord Jesus, of our and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chooses us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I don't know about you, but when our deacon Bobby Sims read the scripture, boy, that, that's a big bite. You ever taken a bite too big? And you just kind of, at what point do you feel like a camel? And then at what point as an adult do you go, I'm defeated by this bite. And I must go spit this out. Have y'all had this happen? Come on, have y'all had this happen? You've had it happen. It's probably steak. Let's be real. And so when I, when I read a scripture like this, I'm like, my goodness, that, that, that's a big bite. That is just like your brain. If you watch me, I stand here just listening to it with my eyes closed because I have to mentally start to section it out in my own head, even though I've read this verse a hundred times in the past three weeks. But I still have to go through because there's so much. So as we start to break this down, let's look at our first, our first, not notable, but our first um, point of emphasis I want us to see, which is found in three and four. It's the blessed in Christ. There are four points here, which are four different sermons that I won't preach to you today. But in verse 3, it says, Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, and here's the first one, every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Now, an interesting note, that term heavenly places is only used, let's see, a handful of times, five times in the entire New Testament, all are found in the book of Ephesians. So that's a very noteworthy thing that Paul is hitting something, which means Paul is speaking to something that is happening in Ephesus. It's, it would be out of character to all of a sudden hit this theme of heavenly places for no reason. You don't just wake up on Tuesday and start using words that you haven't used in any other day of the week, right? Are y- y'all understand what I'm saying here? If you have a style, each of you have a speaking style, a writing style, it's very odd for you to just shift off your style, add in a new term, do it five times, and then not do it again. That's odd. Now, my children, as well as your children, as well as probably yourself, you'll learn a new word, and boy, they'll put that word everywhere. They'll put that word places it doesn't belong. But they continuously, typically use it. So to only be used five times is a great emphasis on something that is being dealt with in Ephesus as Paul sees it, that he needs to really hammer home this verse or this this statement of heavenly places. And we'll kind of come to what might be tied with that a little bit later in Scripture. The second point is, continue reading, even as he chooses us in him before the foundations of the world. We see the blessing through Christ that we as believing Christians have been chosen in him before the foundations of the earth. This is a great blessing and of great comfort in our lives. And we'll get to later as we hit verse 13 and 14 what, what that looks like. How do, you, how do you know you're there? How do you know you're one of the ones that God selected from before the foundations of the earth? And then we see that we should be holy in Christ. That through Christ Jesus, we are made holy through him. And then a couple words later, that we should be blameless in Christ. So Paul has started us off with blessing God the Father. Right there in verse 3, blessed be the God. And then we see him make, start to make these, if you can think of bullet points, of reasons we are blessed in Christ. Not the blessing of Christ, not us you know, offering blessing or word to him, but rather how we are blessed in Christ with those four points, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, a choosing of us from before the foundations of the world, that we should be brought holy in Christ, and that we should be made blameless in Christ. Again, that's a lot. It's exciting. It's a lot of talking and sermon to get to it, but that's exciting. But something is getting ready to happen. Look in your Bibles right at the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, and you're going to see something that looks a little weird. You all see it? Look at the very end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5. Let's see who will say what they see. I'll give you a hint. It's two words. Say it again. In love. Doesn't the punctuation look a little funky there to you? Why is it a period, which we already said shouldn't be there, at the end of verse 4, before him, period, in love, start verse 5? That's, that's weird. We don't see this. This is not a normal thing. And what's really interesting is those two words, in love, serve as this beautiful bridge between two very different things that Paul is saying here. Because you can read it as Paul is saying that we should be holy and blameless in him in love so that we're 
holy and blameless in Jesus in love, or you can read it that in love he predestined us. I like both. Both are good. Both are amen-worthy statements that Paul has recorded here. And I don't find this to be an accident that Paul uses these two very small linking words to pull together being holy and blameless and being predestined in love together. That's not an accident. But if we're not careful the way we let our English get the best of us, it can seem as though the in love part was only for the holy and blameless and not necessarily for the next sentence that would be for the predestined. Now, I don't know if anybody shuddered when I said the word predestined, but some of you might. Somebody online definitely did. I could feel it in my bones. Somebody shuddered because, well, we have a hard time with that word. Well, I've, you know, I've seen a pastor fired over that word. Actually, a pastor growing up was fired from the church that I grew up going to because he preached on predestination. And I was fairly young at the time, and I remember thinking, how did you fire a guy over preaching on something that, that the Holy Spirit laid upon Paul to write in the book of Ephesians? Now, it's in more than one place, but how do you fire a guy for that? Didn't matter. I come from a dirt road in a swamp. They figured out a way, and they did it. What I want you to know, a lot of times when we use certain trigger words, predestined, Holy Spirit's another one, we as Baptists kind of, we're not really, we're not uncomfortable with it. We love the Holy Spirit. We just don't know what to do with him. So we kind of like, it's like grabbing a fish. You ever grabbed a fish? It's good if you got a hold of that fish. But boy, you are one wiggle away from that fish that's got a hold of you. And you don't know, you're dancing with the thing. And so there are these words that do that to us because a lot of times, if you're a, if you're a student of theology and I say predestined, you'll hop up, raise your hand and go, JC, John Calvin, not Jesus Christ. Because John Calvin, the Institutes of Calvin, talks a lot about predestination. We're not talking about that this morning because that's not a subject for the holy place of God. That's a subject for a cup of coffee in a classroom and a whole lot of lecture and a whole lot of this. And we're not doing that. So when you think predestination, I don't want you to think what John Calvin wrote a book that thick on and you want to talk about fun, you can put your kids to sleep with that thing. I love it, but my goodness, it's going to be a long night. I want you to thank God, the Holy Spirit, laid upon Paul to write this word that would come to us right here in verse 4. Even as he chose us from before the foundation of the words, holy and blameless in him, in love, he predestined us. If you look at verse 4, there's a standout little baby word in there. It's the word we. If you go back and look at it, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Who are the we in this verse? Now, it could be open for discussion, but it's quite clear if you just read the next verse, it's those he predestined. We, those that God knew from before the foundations of the earth, we are to be called holy and blameless. What are we predestined for? I'm going to give you all a hint. I like it when you talk back. I like it when you move. And I like it when you know I'm not going to ask you a question other than the Alexander the Great question. 
that's not right there in the scriptures. So when I ask you, predestined for what? All you got to do is read the next verse and shout it out loud. Adoption as what? Children, sons. Have you thought about this adoption? So in an in a ancient world, you, you don't adopt people. As a family, as, as, you know, put yourself back in the days of Jesus, well before, well after, pretty much actually own up to modern day in Israel. They, modern day, they do not adopt. That's not a good practice because that's not your child. You did not father that child. So even now, there's tons of kids in Palestine with no ability to have a mom or dad because the culture so looks down on adoption and then the way the culture also handles the segregation of religion, which is Christianity to a very minute percent, but then top-heavy on Judaism mixed in with about 15% Muslim, a Christian can't even just go adopt a Muslim child. Little baby, that baby's not, not any religion. It's a baby. But I could not go and adopt that child because the government stands up and says, that's not yours. You don't actually want something that's not yours. And so when Paul writes here of an adoption, there is a deep beauty in this word adoption as sons. We would, the, my kids and I, we, we would just go walking. I love to just walk in Nazareth. It's cobblestone, it's old, it's loud, it's smelly, it's trash everywhere, but it was home. It was beauty for me. It was a place where I could go and relax. And it never failed. I could walk through the streets with both of my children, one at each hand. And whenever I would meet strangers, which was all day, every day, I stood out for reasons I bet you can't guess. American, it sounds like this. Obviously, I stand out. And they would come, and every time, male or female, didn't matter, young or old, didn't matter, and they would kneel down and talk to my son. What is your name? Who are you? Where are you from? And boy, he was somebody because he was my son. Meanwhile, my daughter stands there as though she doesn't exist. She's a girl. In this world, girls don't exist. My best friend in Israel, I had to get on him one day. I'm like, buddy, my daughter's trying to give you a hug. Will you leave the boy alone and think about the girl for a second? But it's not there. And the reason why I'm telling you this story is not to culture bash any one group, but is to point out the weight of what Paul is saying here when he says adopted as sons. So no son is basically getting adopted in the ancient world. No woman is definitely getting adopted unless they're looking for a servant, in all honesty. But when Paul writes this, he's saying, I'm not talking about half a kid. I'm not talking about a kid that I kind of like, that I'm like, okay, you can, I'll feed you, I'll take care of you, but I love my other ones more. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about some sort of watered-down version of the family you really wanted. Now, I know some of you have adopted children. Did you ever look at that one child and think, boy, if you had my DNA, I'd just love you so much more? Anybody? Anybody want to own up to that? No, because you didn't do it. When you adopted or fostered or took care of a sibling, it is in a place of pure love, right? 
It's not something that you're just doing as if God keeps some sort of mystical check box of things that you did that looked really good in our American society. No, you did that because you had a deep movement of love that you wanted to bring in something that is quite honestly not yours and bring it in and fully embrace it as though it is fully yours. Because what happens when you adopt it? It is fully yours. Y'all ever adopted like one of the saber rescue dogs? Anybody ever done that? I'm, anybody ever done that? I'm going to wait till I hear something. Yes, okay. I would never do this. I don't want a broken dog. Give me a brand new dog, you know? But people don't adopt these dogs and then not like it because it's not a brand new dog. I know that's a funny term, but you get what I'm saying. You grab it, you love it. It's part of your family, even though it's mangy and ugly and not nearly as cute as a puppy. It's yours because it got grafted in to your family and it became an adoption. Now, I don't care about the dogs. I care about the people. The dogs was just a good example. When you brought that child in, you grafted it in to where it could not be separated. It is not your adopted child. It is your child. It is not 99% of your love and affection. It is all of your love and affection. And we hit this point hard because Paul is telling us right here in verse 5 that we were predestined before the foundations of the earth to be right here adopted as sons in Christ Jesus. Fully grafted in as sons. That word is not used on accident. Again, I've told you in the Middle Eastern world, daughters are just a little bit lower. So to use the word adopted as sons is to fully bind together a lifelong adoption as long as you are following Christ. It cannot be separated, just like you, no matter on your best or worst day, cannot shed your children away and say, these are not my kids. You can't do that. You may be foolish enough to say it, but that will always be your child. And what we see is in God's great holiness, adoption as sons, not to be separated as long as we are given to the requirements of this unity. That is when we say amen. 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 We're going to do it till you mean it. Amen. I got all day. I live next door. I can go home, stay on mic, get a Gatorade, and keep saying all, amen all day. This is a big deal. Lord, thank you. Thank you for adoption. As we continue forward, why are we adopted? I'll give you a hint. It's right there in the scriptures. Anybody see it? We're adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of? And what is the purpose of his will? Next sentence. To the praise of his glorious grace. You've got to understand I don't know if you've ever seen like an, an orphan movie or something like that. Annie, is that a, she's an orphan, right? I've never seen it. I'm assuming she was the likable one of the group. I don't know. But what I do know is you're, if you're an orphan and you're in an, an orphanage, you're just sitting there hoping you're selected, I imagine. You're smiling. You brush your teeth. If you found somebody else's deodorant, you put it on that day. And you're on your best behavior because you want a real home. 
You want a real family. God did not do that to us. God didn't look down and go, I like that one. He's strong. I like this one. They got a nice smile. No, God adopted us, those that would love him, as we will come to in a few moments, those that, were, that he foreknew before the foundations of the earth, through Christ, were adopted as sons. Why? For what? His glorious grace. It is his honor. He adopted us because of great, how great he is. Not because of anything that us wretched sinners are capable of doing. But rather because of his glorious grace, he adopts us again. Amen. Thank you, Lord. In verse 7 through 9, we see five more points. A minimum of five more sermons. In Christ, we have five things. Redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of our trespasses. All wisdom. Insight. And making known the mystery of his will. I want to touch this word mystery really quick. This is important because this word kind of sends us back to another word that might have made us feel a little bit like, eh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Not, not that you doubted it, but just something that we're not used to hearing, which was that word heavenly places. Remember I said that was used five times, and now we're coming to a word that makes me as a Christian feel a little bit uncomfortable, mystery. I don't want to think my, about Lord, the Lord not revealing all things to me. I don't want to believe that there's this hidden mystery that I don't get to know. Why would he do that? So first we need to understand the word mystery as it is in Greek. It is not the word mystery to not be revealed. It's the word mystery that will be revealed. And we see the revealing of this mystery in the person of Christ Jesus. And all through time, we see God constantly telling his people through the prophets, showing the disciples, whether it be resurrection of a boy in Nain or Lazarus, or whether it be the healing of the blind, the sick, or whether it be walking across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is constantly saying, you know I'm God. You know I'm God. You know I'm going to go die for your sins. And yet it's as if it's this mystery that the disciples can't seem to figure it out. But on the day of ascension, we start to see this mystery is no longer a foggy room that we're not quite sure where we're going. All of a sudden, it clicks the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit fall, and they understand the mystery of Christ. Not to be hidden, to never be uncovered, but rather to be revealed with the falling of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Spirit came and helped us see what, who, when, where the fluidness of the gospel has started in Genesis 1-1. And all the way through Revelation, God allows us to see. And so when we see the word mystery coming on the backside of the word heavenly places, you got to remember we're in Ephesus. We're in a place of spiritual depravity. It is no doubt Paul is dealing with a Gnostic belief, which is the belief that God has these hidden things and that there's this other way to God, which is an absolutely cult-like tendency. And we see a heavy rise in Gnosticism today. But Paul is addressing there is no mystery that's not revealed to you now. You know who Christ is. And in him, 
We see his plan of the fullness of time in verse 10. This was what he was going to do all along. God didn't make a mistake and go, oh, I messed it up with Abraham. Let me fix it with this one. No, this was his plan from the beginning that the law should come. The very hand that reached down and touched the rock and wrote, thou shalt not, was the same hand that would be bloodily nailed to a cross and would die for your sins. We are back to the emphasis of the triune God. That there is Father, there is Son, and there is the Holy Spirit all at work in what Paul is starting to really drive home. And we see in verse 11, there's this inheritance that's coming. And we're going to move into that in just a moment. And then we see we in verse 12. And that we, so that we were the first hope, that we could be those Paul's companions. It could be the first Christians that were Jewish. We don't know who the we is. It doesn't matter. All we know is we are part of we, okay? You're grafted in, remember? Stay with that. I know that's a lot of, that's a lot of movement there. Now, we're going to start the sermon. No joke. That was all built up. I'm a minute over. Verse 13 and 14. This is amazing. Prepare your heart for this word from the Lord. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me show you something that you may not have missed. Do you, have you ever woke up, maybe looked in the mirror, maybe had a friend or a neighbor that one day said, I'm just not sure if I'm saved, and it scares you, scares you for them. If it's you looking in the mirror, you're scared for yourself. This is your measurement right here. Paul makes it very, very clear. If you want to know if you've been predestined from before the foundations of the world were set in Christ, it says, so that in him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. You can't believe in something if you've not heard it, right? That's basic child's play. You have to hear it in order to believe it. But it's not enough to hear it, and it's not enough to have heard it. It also has to be the gospel of your salvation. Let me make this clear. We're talking leather to leather here, guys, end to end. We are not talking about where the Jewish scriptures stop at the completion of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament. We're talking Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. Heard the word and hearing the word also is the gospel of your salvation. This, if I could hammer something into you, it would be this. Many people have heard a word. Many people have read their Bible. Many people have heard the gospel without reading the rest of the Bible. Many people believed in Jesus without hearing the gospel or reading the word. You can change this up 
however you want to. But Paul is making it clear. If you want the sealing of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have to hear the word. It has to be the gospel. It cannot be a watered down, tickle me Elmo, make me feel good, something that makes you feel good about a life you're currently living. No, it is the gospel. You hear the word, which is the gospel, and the part where the world struggles. Believe in Christ. Because again, scholars around the world have heard the word. They've read the gospel, but they do not believe the gospel. If you are void in any of these three areas, read on. The sealing of the Holy Spirit in your life comes when you hear the word, the gospel of your salvation, and believe. If you've ever taken that moment to step back and go, God, I don't know. This is a lot of stuff. I'm scared. I'm getting older. I just woke up on the wrong side of a bed on Tuesday, and that makes me nervous because, God, maybe you're not real. I've got anti-creationists coming at me left and right. I've got a political world that's enough to make you jump out the window. God, are you really there? All you have to do is read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Hear the word, the gospel of your salvation. Believe, and upon that, salvation comes to you via the healing Work and loving work of the Holy Spirit stamped on you. That is another amen. I want to share one last thing with you. This sealing of the Holy Spirit on us. In the ancient days, the kings would send out decrees. They didn't write. The king's not writing anything. He's the king. If I'm king, that's the first thing I'm not doing is writing anything ever again. I live by dictation. And if you ain't with it, you are out. So someone writes down a decree from the king or someone writes down, tells the king it's a good idea. It now has to be sealed as not to be tampered with. I'm wearing a ring right now. Mine's not as nice as a king's. Mine's cost 60 bucks in a market in Nazareth, but it's a compass on it. But they would have a ring that represented the king. That was the signet ring. And they would heat up wax and stick that ring in that wax and they would seal that either scroll or that folded letter. And what that meant was it it does not matter if you disagree as a congregation or as a society with the contents or if you go, well, the king didn't really write it. Someone else wrote it. That doesn't matter because that seal represents the strength of the king. And when we see Paul telling us that upon hearing the word, hearing the gospel, receiving and believing in Christ Jesus, you are now stamped and sealed with the Holy Spirit means you cannot be stripped away because before the foundations of the world were laid, you were what? Predestined because of his holiness, because of Christ's work. If you can't get excited about this, ladies and gentlemen, you will live a very miserable rest of your Sunday because this is God saying, you know those days you struggle? You're sealed, you're mine, because you heard, believed, confessed, and that stamp is upon you, and this Holy Spirit is going to is your inheritance. Read further. It says, who will guarantee our inheritance until we, until we acquire possession of it. There's another way of saying that. And if you take the, the, the part out where it says acquire possession of it, the phrase can also be used until God redeems his possession. So what is happening here is God, Paul is telling us there's this foundation. There's this blessed God. 
There's this Christ, and he's going to give us these blessings. And part of these blessings is a foundation in which, because of love, I predestined you. And because I predestined you, and you've called out to say, I hear the word, I hear the gospel, I believe the gospel, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm sealed, so that now the Holy Spirit has made you a possession of God. You cannot take away God's possession. You cannot be bought by the wicked one because you do not belong to you. You belong to God who has redeemed you and sealed you with the king's stamp that cannot be removed under any circumstances because the king will not allow his throne, his name to be blasphemed because he is the king. So now we're back to point number one. Are you confident before the throne of Christ? Can you close your eyes tonight? Know you would die in the morning and sleep confidently knowing that the Holy Spirit has sealed you and your inheritance is heaven because the Holy Spirit has so worked in your life that you are sealed. If you are not confident in that, you need to find a pastor, you need to find a deacon, and you need to cry out to a holy God, God, make me confident. I want to read, I want to understand the gospel, and I want to believe, and we will sit with you, and we will walk with you through this process, because you won't make a decision in this lifetime more important than this one. Are you sealed in confidence with the Holy Spirit? to stand before God, to grovel in the throne room before a holy God and know, God, my sins, they've broken me. I've done things. I've been good, but I've done things that you didn't approve of. But God, you sealed me because it wasn't about my shortcomings. It was about your grace. It was about your glorious will. It's about the work at Calvary, not because of anything I could ever do, but because of the work you've already done since before the foundations of the earth. Amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you for calling us out. Those that hear the word, believe the gospel, confess who Christ is. Lord, that we may be sealed with an inheritance through the Holy Spirit in the heavenly realm to be your servants and be before you in all. Lord God, Jesus, thank you. Spirit, Holy Spirit, thank you. Father, thank you. Amen. We're now going to go into our communion. If you don't have your communion cups, you can hop up and grab them. I'm going to be reading to you a very short scripture in Matthew chapter 26. You can turn to your Bibles there if you would like. Matthew 26, in verse 26. Now as they were eaten, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Lord, blessed be your body, broken for me, that we may be redeemed. Eat. In verse 27, And then Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, 
gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you for the blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We love you. Drink. Father, we thank you for a day that we share in your grace, that we share in your love, that we share in your communion with believers. Bless us as that we go out the blessing of knowing you, the blessing of reaching out to you, the blessing of crying to you, Father. May in all things, all speech, all action, and all motivation, God, it be laid at your feet and beg of you to take it and call it worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. As you leave today, think of Deuteronomy 11. You shall therefore lay these words of mine upon your heart and upon your soul. Thank you for being here today, congregation. Have a blessed rest of your day.